If life is a mystery, who done it? Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. It's fitting to encore today my conversation with comic, documentarian, podcaster, and our first Hindu guest, Hari Kondabolu. This weekend begins the Diwali Festival of Lights, a religious holiday celebrating light triumphing over darkness. And in a time of religious and political polarization, this holiday is observed by multiple faiths, not only Hindu, but also Sikh, Jain, and Buddhist. One of the joys for me of re-listening to these interviews out of order in which we recorded them is that patterns emerge between guests of different faith, like two guests who were raised Catholic, Michael Patrick King and Paul F. Tompkins. There was a time after Hari left home for college that he began to stray from his Hindu faith, but like them, he didn't want his mother to find out. And Hari draws interesting similarities between Hinduism and Catholicism that I never would have thought of. He and I discussed the Indian Telugu language, adrenaline-infused action musical RRR, that became the first Indian film to win a Best Original Song Oscar. And I think you'll enjoy hearing Hari tell about how the 2020 pandemic was, for him, ironically, one of the best years of his life. While comedy was on hold, his partner gave birth to their first child. He says, it's so strange to be surrounded by so much death, but have life be brought to me. And now, let us bring to you Hari Kondabolu. Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter, and it is my pleasure today to have a wonderful, very talented, very brilliant comedian and actor and podcaster and documentarian and also a friend, Hari Kondabolu. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. You know, I know my credits, but it's still always wonderful to hear them. Yes. Well, and you should be proud of them. But what I want to talk to you about first is not your art, which we will get to. But I want to talk to you about the movie RRR, which I saw in a theater on a big screen. Volume was at 11. The experience I was what I'm not used to having. It, I would describe it as enthusiastically interactive. There was cheering. There was booing. There were standing ovations. And that was just for the previews. Then the movie itself comes on, and it has both Shakespearean qualities of shifting tones uh, every scene that something's comic then it's tragic or then it's a song in in this movie and then also it feels like an indian version of the golden age of hollywood that people are so eager to be entertaining so is that what one normally sees i mean, I've, I've definitely experienced that but not really here i like going to to India and seeing films in, in my like grandmother's t small town and small town in India, still hundreds of thousands of people, if not more. But there I remember seeing people jump up and down and, and the songs come out ahead of time. Oftentimes they come up before the film is out. So people already know the song. So they're singing along when they show up in the movie. Now, also, there was a component of or you tell me there's a component of religion coming out in a couple of ways. One is there is a statue of a warrior goddess who then provides one of the protagonists with 
the the bow and arrows by which to fight the enemies i mean the religious stuff to me is is pretty over like the you know that scene where he gets the bow and arrow that is actually lord rama he's you know that's why they he's they call him ram as well he's kind of taking on the personas of lord rama just briefly Ra the ramayana and the mahabharata are the the two big hindu epics right and so there isn't a centralized book like there is in other religions so these two mythic stories take on a great deal of importance and so when you see him with the bow and arrow his his hair in that way dressed in those robes that is what lord ram when he was exiled from his kingdom was wearing in the forest so it's immediate when people see that it's an it's a med an immediate connection the religious part to me, it was very clear. And, you know, when I watched the film, Scott, I really tried to just watch it as a film, as a fan of film, and try to ignore the rest of it, even there were parts of it that were, were tugging on me, for sure. And then after the film ended, which, by the way, I loved watching the film. The film itself is just so enjoyable. But after watching it, you know, I, I felt those tugs because this film comes in the context of a Hindu rite in India that is very dangerous, that is very intolerant, that is trying to, as it has for many decades, heat up um, that, that, that anger between Hindus and Muslims. And, it, and, is, it, and, and so to me, this film is very much doing that. And uh, it's a bummer because, you know, being able to watch it just as a film is one thing, but when you start thinking about why certain decisions were made, what it would stir up. It's disappointing. And also, again, this is like a, a Quentin Tarantino-type version of history. These were real historical figures, and the filmmaker put them in the same setting and created slightly different backstories and got them to work together in this film, which, by the way, was controversial to begin with because they're having upper-caste people play People, you know, particularly Beam, who was a native, he was not Avasi and fought for Adivasi rights. So already you're having an upper class, an upper caste person play him. And also the fact they they made him a little stupid, like they had him being humble towards, quote unquote, Ram, which, first of all, this guy, the other guy isn't a god. He is also a fighter. You know, he also has an agenda. And that plays into the tropes of the the native that is humble before the upper caste. So all this stuff was in there and I saw bits and pieces and then going afterwards, allowing myself to actually be in the space of analyzing what I was seeing and then looking up other things that I might've missed. Like it's a great film. It's really enjoyable, but <laughs> as somebody who's in, aware enough of the politics of India right now, once I, allowed myself to step away as a fan and of, of films and just actually think all of a sudden becomes a much more troubling film. You were born in Queens, New York, which is near the home of your beloved Mets. And your, your parents are Hindu. They're, they're first generation in the U.S. Is that they yes. both came here from India and then you from India. And, and your brother were born here. That's right. Dad so, came in. In the late 70s, mom came in 81. And and I've heard you talk about the area in Queens where you grew up is the most culturally diverse, one of the most culturally yes. diverse areas in America. So 
did how was religion presented to you in your household growing up? I mean, it's funny because it, it you know when you're not it's when it's not the majority culture when it's not everywhere it needs to be taught to you as opposed to you just live your life and you'll pick up stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like I know about more about Christmas and Christianity than someone should probably know who isn't Christian, but that's because I grew up here. So it's just in everything, right? So you 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 get bits and pieces. It's in literary references. It's it's on Jeopardy as does the Bible. It's just a big part of it. So it has to be taught to me. And the way it was taught to me was in stories my mother would tell me and my brother, different myths, right? Because there is no centralized text that Hindus are reading. It's stories, right? It's a very verbal tradition. And then what was huge were two things. The, these comic books called Amar Chitrakatha, which are a series of comic books about mostly were tales of religion. There's folk tales and stuff, and but it was mostly a lot of Hindu religious stories told in this comic book form that children could read and understand. They didn't have the same level of detail. They didn't have the same uh, specifics, but they had they had enough where the kid would know the story more or less. And then the big thing it was the Ramayana miniseries followed by the Mahabharata miniseries because to ground myself in a culture where I'm in, even though I had my parents and I had Indian community and a Telugu community in Queens and in Jackson Heights, seeing films that all the people are are brown, they're all Indian, and they're telling this fantastical epic. That especially as a kid, there was tons of war scenes and demons and magic. I've always thought like Hinduism is a very sellable religion, if that makes any sense. It predates Star Wars, obviously. And when you see Star Wars, I'm like, there's epics, there's pieces of Hinduism in there. There's there's things that can be turned into action figures. If you didn't know anything about Hinduism and you saw a Hindu temple, it would be startling to see like elephant gods and monkey gods and many arms. I mean, it's it's a for a child, it's incredibly exciting. It's easy to to immediately buy into, even if you weren't from that religion, because it's it, it that just grabs your attention. So seeing these films allowed my mom in particular to kind of teach me some morals and some major things about our culture. And so that was really the bulk of my religious education, which, you know, for years I was kind of embarrassed about, like, really, I'm watching these films and this is how I am learning about my faith and what I get from my mom. And then, you know, I've met other like Hindu Americans who same experience in this country. You didn't feel like all of a sudden I'm going to a completely different world. When you have that in your neighborhood, it doesn't feel as strange. It's not to say that, you know, because when I'm going outside, not everyone's Hindu, not everyone's Indian. But there's a lot of us. There are Indian stores everywhere. I mean, there were the silk shops. There was the the music and videos from India. There's the the jewelry stores. There was Indian restaurants. It, it was all there. So it was a different world, but not so different where I felt weird talking about Hinduism or knowing this was my religion. I knew it wasn't the majority religion just by media in America, but I never felt lost in it. I never felt like I didn't fit. And did it feel like as you grew up and you got farther away from your immediate neighborhood, did you have a sense growing up of being part of a minority or did that come progressively later as you did more things farther away from home? No, you get it pretty quickly because your teachers are, none of them are Indian. 
You know what I mean? So you're, like, you're, you're going to a public school. Going to a public school and you you know, based on what's taught, what religions are referenced. They weren't talking about Diwali every year, you know, like it was clear that, okay, we're somewhat, I mean, at the time it felt less than, or at least not as important or relevant. I don't even know if I had language back then, but I knew that, okay, this is something that's not valued outside of home in the classroom. We talk about Christmas and Hanukkah, but we're not going to talk about this. And right. so that's clear from an early age. And plus you watch media, Charlie Brown has a Christmas special. Do you know what I mean? Like there are Christmas specials. Like it immediately, you know, I don't need to be out of New York to know that. Right. And then as you get older and as you, you leave home, as you get older, are you, is there a time of uh, rebellion or alienation from the religion you're bring you're you're brought yes. up in, yeah, because it's it's confusion, you know, because you know, you're thought in a certain Western mindset, right? And seeped into that is a certain version of God, that is a single God, that is someone you can communicate with directly. It's not like I was taught Christianity, but that's all that's in films. How people reference God, talk to God, pray. And so that's going to seep into the way you think, even though you're a Hindu, right? Like when I get frustrated, I still say Jesus Christ, you know, like that's still, it's, it becomes <laughs> so part of, of who you are. And so at a certain point, certainly I remember being in college, I went to school in Maine. So that was a big shocker to the system, but, you know, learning traditional liberal arts education, critical thinking. And I went back home and was watching the Ramayana and Mahabharata videos with my mom that we did like every year at that point. And they were subtitled at this point in English. So I could actually follow along without having to ask questions. And it was the first time I was like, this is so sexist, mom. This is reinforces misogyny. There's clearly stuff with caste here with like the tribal, quote unquote, tribal and, and the upper caste. Like, this is the first time I, I started saying things like that. And my mom was like, why are you ruining this for me? Like, because to her, this is her childhood. This is her faith. This is her grandmother. This is growing up. This is home. To me, it's this thing I grew up on that does not make any sense. In addition to, are people literally thinking there was an elephant God? Are you telling me this is the case? And it wasn't a bunch of stories that were created to br bring together fables and, and bring together morals that people took literally because it was easier to pass around than talking about complicated Vedic texts that priests were do using. And it became this political thing with the Brahmins having so much control. Like, we're going to ignore all that when we watch this. And to my mom, it's like, yes, we're going to ignore all that. Because to me, that's not what it's about. And, and so that's where I started to kind of stray in addition to the fact that I, I couldn't pray in a way that was like the prayers I grew up on. I, I didn't know Sanskrit. I didn't know Telugu. I didn't know how to do any of the pujas. I didn't know uh, what, what are what pujas. I, Pujas are they're like Hindu prayers, right? Okay. The ceremonies. Okay. It's very, Hinduism in a lot of ways has similarities to Catholicism. It's very ritual based. It's very um, the idea of like a, my private meeting with God. No, there's in betweens for that. Um, there, you know, whether there's priests or whether there's the statue, you know, there's the things you have to do because you have to do them because your parents are telling you to. And that's what we do. And I don't know why this right exists, but we have to do it because this is what you do. So it's very ritualistic. So 
um, as you're falling away and you're also announcing the following away to your mother, yes. is there tension in the household? Does your younger brother share your attitude or is he? Oh yeah. My brother was on that earlier. Like my brother got, when he was in the eighth grade or seventh grade, got very into religion because he started reading, getting into it. And then as he got older, you know, cause my brother's always been a voracious reader and a critical thinker. It didn't take him long to be like, what are we doing? You know, for me, I think I held on longer. I think probably in part two, because going to school in Maine, I was trying to hold on to myself and hold on to like my sense of this is my culture. At this point, I've come around because I think it's never going to be the way it was or is in India. And that's okay. The way Hinduism is for me is never going to look like my parents' Hinduism, nor is it going to look like Hinduism in India, you know, because Hinduism in India isn't consistent. Hinduism is not a centralized thing. You know, people are attempting to centralize it for political reasons, but from village to village, there's different gods. It's like the saints in Catholicism. Like you have so many different saints, you have so many different gods, and each of them represents a different thing. I pray to this saint. If I'm a sailor, I pray. So this saint is my sailor. It's the same thing. I'm a student. I pray to Ganesha because he helps get you through obstacles. I pray to Lakshmi as a kid because he she grants you success. You know, so there's those kinds of things. So for me, at this point, I'm praying in English. I'm praying almost the way a Christian would pray because I don't know how to pray any other way. And that's the way I was, you know, that prayer was kind of put into my head. I'm praying in English to gods that that aren't American or Western gods, but I'm using them as focal points to different things in my life. Oh, and okay. I'm saying I'm yeah. saying Om in order to be meditative and to have this moment of connection and a moment to empty my head. So it, it's, you know, it's strange. I, I consider myself a Hindu because of the privileges that have come with that in addition to that's my, you know, cultural identity. But what I'm doing is my own thing, but it's my way of connecting with myself and with my culture. But knowing that it's not, it doesn't look anything like it has looked uh, for so many Hindus around the world throughout history. So you're talking just now about a coming, in a way, coming back to the fold, or at least coming back to a a state of truce or a state of n- not antagonism or announcing a rebellion. Was there a single event or did this occur over a period of time where your rebellion subsided and you came back and maybe bonded more with parents and the culture in which you grew up? It was it was a few things. I mean, one, I was living in Seattle and I would I would still do the prayers or try to find a temple for my mom's sake. And she'd want me to do certain prayers. So I'd I would I would do that. And something about that, you know, especially being in a place where you're not the majority, you know, even more so like, you know, going to a temple in Seattle or something. It's like this is a small little temple. But look at all these people showing up in it and they found a place and that's beautiful. Or finding beauty in other religions and being like, you know, am I finding enough beauty in the one I grew up in? Am I, have I been too critical to the point of not being able to understand its beauty? Um, also, to be honest, being a touring comic, flying, it, you know, you're constantly dealing with turbulence. You're constantly, you know, you can know the science behind it. But for me, it freaks me out, even though I know it's safer than being in a car and going to God in those moments, you know, over yeah. and over. And it's like one of those things, like the first few times you're like, well, yeah, this is how I know how to be, you know, feel better. It's not logical. 
But then after a while, I'm like, I do this every time, though. Like at a certain point, you can't lie to yourself and say, you, you know, you don't believe in a thing. But when you're in that situation, you you hold on to it. And and past that, during some of the more painful parts of my life, deeply personal things and through depression, you know, I've had some connection that has kept me going. So, you know, as much as I want to deny it, it's certainly a, a factor in my life, there, there's no, there's no doubting that, you know, and I, I, I see it even, even more now. It doesn't look the way maybe my mom's gods look like, you know, maybe it, it didn't, it doesn't look the way she has prayed, but it's there. It has, it has factored in. Uh, I, I can't deny that it's part culturally. I'm certainly a Hindu, but I can't deny that there, there's some of that in there. I mean, the difference is, I'm very critical. You know, um, I'd, the caste system is one of the most disgusting things human beings have created. And that could cut across all faiths and cultures, you know, any division of social hierarchy. But, you know, I certainly have benefited from being upper caste. And, and the idea that religion reinforces that is very upsetting. I certainly don't like th the discussions of tribal people and how that has, you know, manifested. I hate the religious fighting between Hindus and Muslims, and particularly the, the Hindu oppression that has happened from this government, I can't ignore all those things while still calling myself a Hindu. Um, so, but at the same time, like, one's connection with something greater than themselves is deeply personal. And maybe that's part of a certain kind of Christian thinking, your personal relationship with God. But I certainly feel that, like, more than ritual I feel a, a connection to something that's greater than me. Like when I look at the when I look at Lord Ganesha's statue, am I praying to to an elephant? Kind of, but more I'm I'm praying to 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 something greater than me. I don't think God's a white man. I don't think God's necessarily an animal. I don't know if God is really a thing that we can call God. I know there's something. And I don't know what that something is. And whatever that something is that connects all human beings, I believe in that. And that is kind of where I try to like go to like have my brain empty out and try to be in that moment um, and, and, and try to meditate. And that's really what prayer has become for me. And that's what kind of religion has become for me and God has become for me. But I still consider myself Hindu because I, I couldn't deny that. So on the other side of this short break, we're going to hear how he went from a master's degree from the London School of Economics to being a full-time stand-up comic. More with Hari Kondabolu right after this break. So I, I want to go back a little bit because you mentioned comedy, you mentioned and flying, you mentioned Seattle. But before that, like most, I think, the comics that I knew when I was doing stand-up and I never did stand-up at the mastery level that, that you have achieved, but when I think of Carrot Top or I think of Pauly Shore, like them, you have a master's degree in human rights from the London <laughs> School of Economics. And, and then, if I'm right, you went to then Seattle and you worked as a human rights organizer. And then you're doing comedy part of the time, but you've got this day job. At what point did that, did that shift? And comedy is plan A and whatever else you're doing uh, as a citizen. Be part-time organizer. That's plan B. 
you know, loved comedy growing up. Margaret Cho was the first person that made me feel like, oh, somebody who isn't black, white or Latino could share their story in a valid way and be funny about it and have respect doing comedy. And so that was the first thing that opened my my eyes to it. Um, and so I started doing it in high school. I did it through through college. And most of my jokes were very much hacky. Like the only times I'd ever seen like Indianness be funny is if it was made fun of. Like Apu is the biggest example of what comedy could be if you were an Indian slash Hindu, right? So, you know, I was doing impressions of my parents. I was making really corny jokes that like people would laugh at. Very kind of exploitative because to be fair, I was 17, 18, 19. What life experiences did I have? And I was figuring out comedy. And all I knew is that it was that silence was scary and this worked. So when 9-11 happens, that's my political awakening. That's when I start to question everything, like what this country is, like question the government, question, like think just really delving into the civil rights movement, study human rights, like thinking about the larger context that things about the number of hate crimes, deportation, deportations, detentions against brown people. I, I was thinking about what this country is and who I want to be and what role I want to play. And this art form I love that I had started getting into three years previous, I'm like, why am I talking about this stuff that isn't even true to my life or my family's life? It's stereotypical. It's exploitative. Like, I never, you know, making the connection that art and politics you know, your personal view of the world and your art could be the same thing. That art has impact, it has value, it can shape. Like all those things I never really thought about until that time. So I ended up seeing, there was a lot of great comedy at that point. I've always loved Mark Maron. David Cross had a double album that came out right after 9-11, which if I remember right, before The Daily Show got all in on like being you know, very politically minded show that David Cross double album was really incendiary and was very critical of the Bush administration. And there's a lot of bravery in it. And when I was in D.C. Uh, in 2003, I heard Paul Mooney do stand up and it blew my mind that, wow, you can talk about race. You can talk about white people. You can talk about your experiences. People can walk out of your show and it doesn't matter because it's your truth. And so I start trying to put my my politics, my feelings about race and this country into my act. And I struggled because initially when you, especially when you're that young, like you're just excited to share your ideas and you can be militant. But you, I lost the comedy part. I was so excited about sharing what I felt and the anger I felt. I forgot the comedy part. I went to Seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer at that point because I didn't, you know, comedy wasn't a real thing to me. And um, it wasn't something I thought could happen. Who made it in stand up as a South Asian at that point, 2005? And uh, working as an immigrant rights organizer, working with victims of hate crimes, doing comedy at night in Seattle. And there I started to hone my craft and figure out, okay, you know, the jokes I wrote when I was 18 that were stereotypical, they were still written well and they still hit punchlines. And they still showed skill. And so how about I take the things I learned and the things that I, I have studied by listening and watching so much comedy and try to apply that to what I felt? And that's really the beginning of turning it into more of a thoughtful set. 
I get into the HBO Comedy Festival. I get a manager. I get discovered out of Seattle. And even though the stuff I'm talking about is thoughtful and is very politicized and has anger in it, that doesn't mean that there isn't an audience for it. And definitely the Internet helps you believe that, too, because you're not just performing in front of the crowd that's in front of you. You're also putting clips online and seeing, oh, I'm impacting people around the world. So, so that's the point I decided to go head first. I'm a comic now. That's 2008. So you, so am I getting this right? You had already been at the HBO Comedy Festival and you had done Kimmel and you stopped to go to graduate school in economics? That's how little faith I had in uh, American racism. Like, I'm just assuming they're n- there's regardless of what I've achieved, they're not going to let me do much more than this. Like, it doesn't matter how good I am. There is no interest in it. And plus, again, this is the the importance of having uh, role models and people who've done it before you. Because when there isn't that model, you know, what are you going to do? You're, you're, like, for me, I'm not like, I was never someone who was wildly adventurous and who did things without some calculation. And doing the calculation in 2007, I was on TV once. I had a manager. What does that mean? That doesn't guarantee stable income. And for some reason, I don't know why I thought a human rights career was more financially stable, but I definitely knew that there was a path there and it was stuff I was passionate about. And it didn't, it felt like a waste of privilege to not uh, pursue something that my education had prepared me for. But the temptation of people wanted me to do stand up, they wanted me to perform. And the fact I was hearing about the impact I was making with my art, like, that isn't the intention when you do comedy. You don't think about being studied in college classrooms. You think about, am I making the crowd in front of me laugh? Can I record an album one day? Can I put out a special? Like you're not thinking bigger picture. It's a career as well as an art form. You're thinking about how do I produce more art? And strangely enough, while I was studying, I got asked by Comedy Central to fly back to New York to shoot a show called Live at Gotham, which was a stand-up showcase mm-hmm. show they used to do. So, you know, the fact I was flown to New York, stayed in a hotel, relearned my act after I hadn't done it for six months, relearned it in a week of doing shows in New York, which was exciting because I've never done shows in New York like that to begin with. Then to to tape TV, go back and then take my exams and write my dissertation. Like it proved to me that like, hey, I, I guess I am pretty good and that I did miss it. And that after this degree is over, Maybe there is something waiting for me. So let's move ahead a little bit. I want to also now, I want to get to the pandemic. You also became a father during that time. And I would like to hear a little bit because now were you, how did you get through when clubs were closed? How did you, what was, what kind of a challenge was that like to you? I mean, standup was, it was the, it was the longest break I'd ever taken from standup, right? Like, because it wasn't just the year when it was the heart of the pandemic. After I having the kid, I didn't go up for another year after that. So it was two years where I didn't miss it. And it was strange to not miss it. And I started to towards the end. But, you know, I was so it, it, it felt like stand up had taken so much from me as much as it's given stuff to me. It's taken away time from friends, from family, from having a life that wasn't so career focused, from from all these things. And, you know, as you know, like it's not st- comedy and entertainment in general is is fickle. It, there are no guarantees. It's mostly just contract work. You're, you're doing high end contract 
work, but it's contract work. Like it, it, it means that you're always on and the invention of cell phones and iPhones means you're really always on. It's, it's hard to ever separate yourself. And, you know, I missed birthdays. I missed the birth of friends, kids. I'd missed uh, weddings, like all this stuff. And this was the first time I'm like, I have a life. I have a partner. I have a child. Like, Honestly, you know, it, it. I feel incredibly guilty saying this, and it's very bizarre to to verbalize it. But 2020 was one of the best years of my life, and it's so strange to be surrounded by so much death, but have life be brought to me. And I'm so grateful that I was given the opportunity to um, spend that much time with my child, and I had a job that let me not have to to work and it was it financially great no but i wasn't concerned in that moment and do i wish i would if i if i if i had my wish i would hope this pandemic never happened i wish so many people didn't die obviously i'm very aware of that but i was aware of it when it was happening how weird it was to have life happen and you know i felt we initially felt kind of guilty announcing to friends or to post that we're having a kid but the joy people had, I think partly because, God, there's so much sadness. We had people who were not even close friends, but like distant friends or even acquaintances send us wonderful gifts and stuff. And I think the idea of bringing life at that time, I think it meant a lot to people. And so to me, you know, speaking of religious experiences, it was certainly this kind of strange, like, why is this happening right now? And what does it mean that it's happening right now? And being a parent immediately thinking outside of yourself i mean so much was in buddhism the idea of like you have to get rid of self parenting helps with that certainly there's a degree of like everything i do is not just for me anymore and and for my ego and when i worry about career i worry about making sure he's okay and unbelievable and uh hell of a time for it to happen uh, i'm grateful but man, what what a strange time for it to happen. What it reminds me of is I've been working for a couple of years now on this play about Shakespeare towards the end of his career. And he comes out of a period of one despairing play. I mean, it's like he, for several years, he can't write a play unless there's a stage full of dead people at the end. Right. Um, you know, Hamlet and King Lear and Othello and Macbeth and... Uh, and then Coriolanus and Antony and Cleopatra. But what happens at the end of his career is very similar to what you just described, that in the midst of death, there is life. Hmm. That his last four plays, are just, they're grouped as romances. And one of the notions is rebirth. So there are people who are thought dead and come back to life. Or there's the bleakness of winter and then a celebration of spring. And it's and it's very like what you're talking about. I feel like you have opened up a, a new world to me, and I hope that listeners feel that, that same way. I, I want to then ask you a couple questions as we conclude. And, and one of them is, um, the first one is, when you're tremendously challenged, is there any quote? that has come to you over your life when you've had times of stress that has helped you get through it. This is obviously very cliched at this point, but like 
put the life vest on yourself first. And especially as a parent now, it seems even harder to imagine. But I think historically, I feel like I have been the support for a lot of people in different parts of my life and didn't always look after myself. I still don't think I do the best job of it. And as you know, being on the road and being a stand-up is not the healthiest lifestyle and hours. And I've had some periods where I I wish I had stopped doing stand-up. I wish I had stopped and taken some time to myself. And so learning that if I'm not okay, I can't do anything for anyone else, that the idea of the life vest analogy, it, it has helped me a lot. It's a reminder of like, I can't save anybody else in the water if I'm not floating, right? I can't be anyone else's support if I don't have a solid grounding. Then the last question is, if you tomorrow woke up and you were the benevolent dictator of the world and that you had gotten this through a bloodless coup, you hadn't done anything terrible to, to, be, to be named the benevolent dictator of the world, and you were limited to one ceremonial function, which is you could recommend one work of art for everyone to experience. It could be a song, it could be a oh, movie man. or a play or a book, but it's something that's had such powerful impact upon you that you think in your wildest dream. You think that if everyone in the world could just experience this thing, the world would undeniably be a better place. I'm going to say Pater Panchali. It's a film by the great Indian filmmaker Satyajit Ray. He created the Apu trilogy. Yes. And uh, which the character, unfortunately, was named after on The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. But it's a... That first film in particular, you know, it's the story of life in a in a in a poor village it's a story of not having enough it's the story of of hardship it's the story of a little boy growing up his experiences with the world there's limited language a lot of it is very you know there there's some speaking but a lot of it is just you're taking it in it develops really slowly it, it's it's a test of patience especially when we're so used to things moving really quickly and i would suggest not watching it at night but when you have the focus to watch it and really be in it, because it's it's a beautiful meditation. And whenever I see it, I cry at the same scene every single time. I I feel guided in, in a really gentle way through this boy's life. It's a strange thing. I, I don't know that many films that have had that impact on me where it's kind of like when you watch baseball and you're waiting for something to happen, but the in-between times could be boring, but they could also be really important. That's where the conversation happens. That's where you start thinking. You're at ease. You're in the moment. And when something happens, you pop right back into it. The film feels like that a little bit. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that it it gives me this, it has given me this time to reflect and take it in. So I guess it would be other Bonchali. I'd see the whole Apu trilogy, but specifically the the first one is is the one. Well, what a... uh magnificent endorsement of a film I've always heard about, I have never seen, but now I will be motivated to watch it and a joy to have this time with you and to hear you talk expansively about a world that is unfamiliar to a lot of us. And I'm honored to know you. And uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, Exactly. Ditto, friend. I feel 
uh, I, I feel privileged I had this time with you. And also, you know, these are a lot of things I've never talked about. And the fact I felt free enough to share the way I did is also a, a testament to who you are. So, a testament, yes, there's a there's a joke in there. Um, but <laughs> thank you, Scott. I, I appreciate you having me on. Hari, thank you very much. I end each show with a semi-sermonette that I call In My Homily Opinion, which I hope sparks a response in you, so you'll reach out to me by email at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Just after I recorded my Zoom talk with Hari, I heard for the first time in months the voice of another friend of Indian heritage, Sir Salman Rushdie. On the New Yorker's radio hour, Salman gave his first interview since being assaulted last August. I first met Salman when he was a guest on ABC's Politically Incorrect, when he was still under a fatwa by Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini for Salman's novel, The Satanic Verses. In a small room, I prepped this gaunt man in an olive suit and open-collared shirt his hypnotic eyes gazing at me, his head occasionally nodding at my instructions. And I remember feeling that our often brave, always smart, sometimes silly little show was that night center stage in the fight for free speech. And that maybe a transcendent comic moment later on might, in the coming days, provide a balm to a hunted man. Years later, as a regular on HBO's Real Time, Salman would fly commercially to L.A. sans bodyguards, a heavier, jolly man having considered that evening's topic and prepared hilarious, often wise comments for an always appreciative audience. And the drinks and talks that he and I would share after the show would become one of the delights in my years on Real Time. At one point in the New Yorker interview, editor-in-chief of the New Yorker, David Remnick, asked Rushdie how many times he'd been stabbed, and without missing a beat, Salman said, I wasn't counting. And, and then they both laughed. And as I listened, I laughed too. My friend had emerged from a horrific experience with his intelligence, his generosity, and his humor intact and his mind focused on what he would write next. Salman's pen has prevailed over an assailant's sword. Remember, if you have any thoughts to share with me, you can email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. That's yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.